Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Pat Cummings, the Executive Director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Pat, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I'm joined by Pat Cummings, the Executive Director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Pat, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Great to be with you again, Jake. So we spoke about a year ago now. feels like it was last week and obviously yeah. a lot going on. We spoke about a lot of things back then um, from a wagering perspective especially and some breakage, some of the takeout and rebate stuff and hopefully we get into some more of that today. But I do urge people to, to go back. I think it was episode 108 where we spoke about a lot of issues that are facing you know, the future of horse racing and especially and obviously from the wagering side and We'll get into a lot more of that today, but if you do get time, definitely go back, have a listen, and it should flow pretty well with, with what we're going to talk about today. And I figured with the uh, the report that just came out, which I'm sure many have seen or some have probably read uh, in detail, and hopefully if they haven't, they, they go and take a look. It'd be good to address some of those topics, but just very, very quickly and, and broadly, what's what's been happening the last 12 months since we last spoke? Any uh, major developments, any interesting tidbits along the way? Well, besides the um, the current issues that, that racing finds itself in that may have been a little exacerbated by the effects of the pandemic, uh, I think maybe the, the greatest evolution that we've seen in the last uh, few months, and, and I think we're still waiting for the real, the punchline, if you will, um, for the, the, the growth in the fixed odds uh, development of the sport. Um, I continue to, to remain very hopeful that that will emerge sooner rather than later, but the New Jersey is clearly along the way, and your program has, has covered this with, with several different people, uh, most recently Tom Waterhouse and, and their involvement in, in investing uh, with the betmakers and, and how that's evolving. And um, you know, one of, the, one of the things about racing uh, in general is that so many elements of the sport are interconnected. It is a very delicate ecosystem. Uh, between the operators of racing and, and, and specifically speaking, racing in America, because the, the the business model of operating racing is different in many different countries and jurisdictions. So speaking uh, in all of them, there is an interconnectedness, um, but some of those connections are uh, inflated a little bit in their importance and, and the way in which um, Wagering uh, relates um, either on the tote or, or in a fixed setting or, or on exchange wagering um, with the rest of the industry. In America, uh, I think the interconnectedness is, is maybe greater than just about anywhere else. If you look at the United Kingdom, for example, um, there is a tremendous, even though there is a bit of a bubbling uh, undercurrent at present um, with with some some entities that are, are maybe questioning the, the funding model and, and the need to improve prize money, 
that industry has been supported essentially by sovereign wealth for a very long time. Um, there's been a tremendous influx of money from uh, the Middle East that has really kept um, racing going well. And, and you know, it's kept it going for, for a good while. But, but the prize money situation in the UK is, is fairly deplorable if you wanted to include average Britons in racehorse ownership. Um, and, and the wagering trickle down is, is a little tough. Um, it is a completely different situation in Australia where racehorse ownership is widespread, where they have made so many efforts to um, syndicate horses uh, at, a, at a tremendous level, a very small parts. I mean, where people will buy horses and then you can just walk around the sales ground and essentially just sign up and grab a piece. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. And the mix of fixed odds betting, tote betting, uh, the exchange, and really racing's prominence, right? Uh, sports has grown tremendously in Australia, but racing's prominence has always been, been incredibly strong. In America, the situation, as we've seen in the last 12 months, and particularly you've known in the last six, continues to be one of a decline. Now, if we were to look at um, the overall handle figures for say the last 15 16 years in raw figures they look as though they're down about 27 percent if you adjust for inflation which of course you should they're down about 48 49 percent and this is again just in in about 15 years or so it's even worse than that though jake and the reason is you have to ask yourself the question, what is the composition of participation in racing? How does the $11 billion in 2019, how is that bet and by whom? And as our latest white paper uh, espouses, uh, it's a paper that we've titled somewhat cheekily, Racing Not Only for the Elite, and there's a rub on why we use the word elite uh, that we can get to later, but um, the, the point really is that we project that um, roughly one-third, somewhere between 30 and 35 percent, is a very uh, educated guess from us uh, and the consultants that work with us. Um, and experts uh, in the business uh, suggest that that is the percentage of really high-volume betting shop play in racing. Um, in, in this paper, we call them high volume betting shops, but, um, to some of these entities are, are outside of the, the bounds of America, uh, but are wagering into our pools. Um, and as we say, these numbers are in the dozens, right? There's, there's not many individuals that are behind this, but that we think they're accounting for an ever increasing portion of racing wagering. And there are, um, concerns about that, uh, for the sustainability of the business long-term. So if I'm part of the racing pie, whether I'm a breeder, whether I'm a, an owner, whether I work at the, the track itself from a maintenance perspective or preparation perspective, whether I'm a, a race caller, whether I'm a fan, whether I'm a, a player and I like betting on the horses across the board, essentially what I hear you saying is that these are the type of impacts here in the US that can you know, devastate that broader uh, wagering segment sorry, the broader racing segment, not just the wagering segment, because the impacts are, are far more 
I guess, long-lasting across all those areas, just given the funding model and how reliant we are in this country on all the different aspects that go into racing, but just the ability of the wagering side to fund all of that. Correct. It is the most macro question, which is, uh, you know, for example, does Kentucky, whose economy is so intricately tied to racing, understand this current state of affairs uh, down to how does this impact the recreational horse player who may pitch up at the weekend with two or three hundred dollars and how does it impact them over time Um, which is you know the ultimate kind of micro uh, effect Um, everywhere within that uh, space you will encounter almost all racing stakeholders from the very high kind of statewide level here in Kentucky, and of course how it affects all of the other racing states, all of the trickle-down uh, suppliers and vendors of the sport, uh, the horse owners who who put up a tremendous amount of money, who don't control the content, who are not being properly compensated for the content that their investments are providing, and then you have the racetracks, which uh, you know there there have been a number of developments in the last 20 years, which um, the racetracks have, have changed, right? They, they went from being individually owned to being owned by major corporations, which have become diversified casino corporations. And that has an impact. Those, those corporations have been kind of vertically, vertically integrated the, the entire value chain as it relates to racing and wagering. Right. So so they're not just owning casinos that are at racetracks. They also own tote companies. They own bet processing entities. They own the front end user platforms, the advanced deposit wagering entities like ExpressBet and Twinspires. And then you have TVG, which is which is separate to that under the Flutter um, Flutter band uh, brand, if you will. Um, so, so you have a. It's incredibly complex, but um, the the thing that hasn't changed in this process is that you still have people who own horses, train horses, raise horses, feed horses, and supply these horsemen. And there are an increasing number of questions uh, as to whether or not they will be able to sustain themselves and their operations if the status quo continues to evolve. And Jake, without question, this this current situation has devolved in this direction for the best part of 15, 16 years. And really, and the worst part is the industry knew all about it. So let's go back then, 16 years approximately to 2004 when the National Thoroughbred Racing Association's Wagering Systems Task Force uh, addressed some of these topics that we're talking about today. Take us back to what was the climate back then, uh, if you can recall. What was the the impetus to to address some of these questions, some of these topics, and and there were three three outcomes or three major outcomes from that paper, which we can get to. But just before we get to some of those specifically, uh, was it was there a sense of there's a dire need to address these questions and publicly uh, put forward some you know general solutions or are we in a similar place today as we were then? Is is there a sense of, of what that was like back then? Yeah, um, without question. This this report has, I think, really stood the test of time in terms of the, its warnings and, and what could happen if racing doesn't get a handle on its 
um, imbalance. And racing took a bit of an approach, American racing, in 2002, the Breeders' Cup at Arlington Park was subject to fraud. Uh, it's famously known as the Fix Six, where a former auto tote employee um, and two uh, associates uh, placed bets uh, through an OTB location in New York. Um, the uh, auto tote uh, connection, uh, the, the employee of, of auto tote went in and, and knew that the system had flaws and that information was not transmitted to the entire system um, so that, that he could change bets, essentially. And they put in a pick six bet. They were the uh, only winning ticket as a result of Valponi having won the Classic. <laughs> Where would we be if Valponi doesn't win the Breeders' Cup Classic in 2002? I, I don't quite know, but he was 45 to 1 or so. And it turned out that there were, uh, it was published that there were six winning $2 tickets of the pick six that year. Now, Rock of Gibraltar was running in the Breeders' Cup mile. He was an incredibly short favorite. He was overturned by Dome Driver. Rock of Gibraltar ran into all sorts of trouble in the race. Dome Driver wins it, you know, at over 20 to one for France. And there were a couple other minor upsets along the way. Valpony comes along, wins. The classic, and it looks like there's six tickets that pay, I don't know, $470,000 or so, when in reality there was one $12 ticket that these guys had put in, and a $12 ticket, I mean, you know, who puts that in? It, it, it's very rare, particularly in those days. And it's, you know, people who knew better started looking at this and saying, um, Something's not right here. And they were right. You know, uh, gamblers can kind of sniff these things out pretty quickly. They have a lot of experience doing so. They know what's normal and they knew this was abnormal. They sniffed it out and the, there was an investigation. These three guys, they went to jail. Um, it was pretty big. Well, the industry realized they had a problem and they needed to do something about it. And they actually had hired uh, Giuliani Partners, which was led by Rudy Giuliani in the aftermath of 9-11 and his post-mayoral uh, uh, career. And the whole purpose was really wagering security, the technology gap, how things had not evolved, and then the impact on public policy. And the NTRA, you know, brought him and asked him to kind of work with some other firms to develop a strategy to protect racing and then also to kind of propel it forward in this tech, uh, in age of innovation as it relates to online wagering. So Giuliani Partners, uh, retained by the NTRA, um, they involved a group of economic consultants and got set out on working on a, on a, on a report. And in our most recent, uh, in the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation's most recent report, we linked to it several times. It is just tremendous reading. The title of this original report was called Declining Purses and Track Commissions in Thoroughbred Racing Causes and Solutions. Now, Jake, it's hysterical in hindsight to look back at it, but the fear is that handle was rising, but prize money was declining. Commissions to the tracks was going down, and there was a, a, there was a gap there. 
And what are we as an industry going to do about it? That, you know, it, it's crazy. Why is handle going up, but what we as horsemen receive is going down? They were fearful of this. Well, in the subsequent 15, 16 years since then, the cause of that fear in 2003 was a dramatic increase in high volume betting shop play. The heavily rebated customers at that time, almost exclusively offshore. Um, there were some questionable tax situations that were referenced in the original report. It was actually made to seem to be very quite nefarious. Um, and I think that was a bit of a, a natural reaction to get people to, to, to cast an eye to say, I don't think these guys are, are all that good. We need to do something about it. When in reality, instead of finding a way to manage it, um, they, uh, well, I'll get to that. They, they did do something, but, but, but they didn't, they didn't quite do enough. Anyway, the, um, the reality was in 2002, high volume bettors represented about 2% of all American uh, turnover on racing. The next year, it increased to about 7% in 2003. So it was substantial growth. And the tracks we're seeing, you know, we've seen growth here, but, but our numbers are actually going down to what we're receiving, what the horsemen are receiving. So what are we going to do about this? Well, the economic report, which is encapsulated within chapter two of this overall paper, goes into extreme detail about the effect that the high volume players are having. It has specific examples of tracks, one in, in Canada, Woodbine, and one in Arkansas at Oaklawn, where uh, they chose to shut out two of the largest customers uh, for a period of time and see what happens. And naturally, they saw that Local turnover was going up. Um, some of their simulcast turnover was going up. Commissions to purses were going up because they had shut out these heavily rebated customers. Now, those customers they shut out did happen to have incredibly high win rates. And these numbers are cited in this report. It's incredibly eye-opening. There were three recommendations, as you alluded to, that, that came out of the uh, NERA economic consultants who had been retained as part of the Giuliani partners and, and were involved in they, they said, you know, racing in America, you need to do three things. Number one, increase handle. Hasn't happened. Number two, align the tracks and their kind of economic policies with the business model that, that they are facing. Technology is a bigger player. You need to control those levers of the business. Integrate. Vertical integration is specifically recommended. Well, they did do that, right? So, so Churchill Downs, Stronic Group, which at the time was really operating as Magna and emerged to become Stronic later through some, some reorganization, uh, they did that. They, they bought tote companies, two of the main three tote companies in America, Amtote, United Tote, are operated by Stronic and Churchill Downs, respectively. They own two of the largest ADWs. TVG remains essentially an independent ADW, not track-owned. But now the New York Racing Association is getting into that business. And they, they definitely took vertical integration seriously, said this is something we can do, and let's do it. Great. Except they ignored the third recommendation, which was verbatim, establish the most attractive blend of economic incentives to participation 
for both informed and recreational players. And I mean, Jake, this is day one of, of you know, economics. Practice, I mean, this is high school economics. Um, higher effective takeout rates on all betters will decrease participation. Um, true. A anyone you speak to will say, you know, if, if you just, if you charge this customer more than another, eventually that customer is, is probably going to, to uh, reduce participation either by choice or by uh, necessity when, when they run out. This recommendation went unheeded and it was couched with racing needs to increase technological um, access to all customers. That um, while big high volume betting shop players are needed, uh, they wield both a, a technological advantage because they, they can kind of bypass the traditional ADW model and just dump all of their bets into the pool in one shot. That gives them not just a technological advantage, but it, of course, also gives them a financial advantage of knowing if I can put in a ridiculously large number of wagers faster than any other customer, I can wait till the absolute end. I know the final price I'm going to get on this horse. And all of the other people who've been betting for the last 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, they won't know. And what this has had the effect of doing is greatly advantaging those high volume betting shop customers and disadvantaging recreational play. And as we say in our paper from a week ago, not just the recreational play, but even the middle and upper market play, we define recreational as $100,000 of wagering annually or lower. The middle market in that roughly $5 million range and then about $25 million and up to get to the, to the upper market range. Um, those players are disadvantaged too because those players are trying to use programs to submit bets and they are using file uploads through their uh, agreements with ADWs and they're limited to three bets a second. And all of this came to a head two Sundays ago at Del Mar, where there was a $170,000 payout in the pick six. And the report from Del Mar is there was a one winning ticket. It was an $8 base ticket, all singles. The customer bet 8,600 tickets, spent $29,000, was 15% of the pool. And that's the customer that took this down. And one of our Thoroughbred Idea Foundation board members, um, an economist, a professor, Marshall Graham, uh, big horse owner as well, came out and said, normal you know, co computer-assisted wagering customers, it would take them 47 minutes to plug all these bets into the system if they were limited to three bets a second. And this all happened four minutes to the start of the race. Um, that is an edge, that's an advantage. And so not only are you crushing recreational players, both technologically and financially, we are not developing the middle and the upper market to evolve because of the lack of access that they have. So there's this delicate balance that needs to be achieved. And it has, 
grown wildly out of proportion. We think more than a third of overall uh, turnover in America is these high volume players. That has a deleterious impact on all the other players. And the, the real people who suffer here, um, it's not just the horse players, it's going to be the horse people who are filling the races. Um, they need ordinary bettors to participate too. And with all of the other impacts, the rise of sports wagering, the proliferation of, of legal casino wagering across America, um, a lot of ordinary disadvantages that racing pr presents anyway, overall higher costs to the customers, it, it just really beats down racing's customers and, and the sport can't afford it given kind of the tenuous position it is. And it needs to find a way to manage this and, and address it as an issue. That hasn't happened. It's a really interesting discussion point because I've had plenty of people on this podcast and I've heard plenty of other people talking about betting into corporate bookmakers, betting into bookmakers generally and, and wanting to have a, a fair shot, let's say, which many have debated the merits of what's fair and I'm certainly not here to do that. But I, I think it is seemingly a little different when talking about betting into any of the, let's say, flutter groups, brands across the world from a horse racing or even sport perspective. It doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, in Australia, there's plenty of people talking about what to do on you know restricting accounts, even with this, the discussions around minimum bet laws and implementation there. Plenty of different things that go into it, and it's not a very simple discussion to, to have, and it, it's prolonged for many years now, and it it rears its uh, its its face in, in many states in Australia, and many it doesn't. So it's a it's a it's a f interesting discussion, I would say. But here we're not talking about flutter; we're we're talking about uh, the horse racing industry generally, in in a strange way, being on the other side of this, where the impact of wagering, given how much it funds and what it funds, uh, we're not talking about necessarily. Uh, a corporate entity being impacted necessarily we're talking about the everyday person who's involved in the industry and i guess with that said do, do you agree that that's sort of the assessment we're working within and if that is the case what role do we see the high volume betting shops having and i know that 2004 report uh, referenced the the ability to have an attractive blend of incentives for those across the different wagering segments so how do you see that evolution and what we've learned previously and, and what I guess looking forward we can do to address those high volume betting shops especially in light of the, the numbers you just presented I think you said two to four percent of handle uh, you know 18 years ago was was those high volume betting shops to now where it's probably a third yeah the uh, I'll take um, I'll take kind of the relationship to the other wagering entities a little uh, I'll take that first um, there is a delicate ecosystem in horse racing, right? And that the sport exists because gambling keeps it alive. And I, I've, I've heard this feedback um, from, from a couple people already, like, you know, there's plenty of high volume play in daily fantasy uh, as it stands right now. And, and those guys clean up. Um, fine. Understood. Uh, I get it. But the sports that Daily Fantasy is offered on do not exist because Daily Fantasy is there, right? Um, and, and that, I think, is the difference with racing, that this is not faceless. You know, this is 80 to 100,000 people across America who, are, who make racing happen 
through that entire value chain. Racing needs a robust wagering product. And it has been essentially anything but uh, as this uh, gap has increased. So uh, I'll give you kind of the next metric overall that we believe um, a rough estimate. And, and it's if, if you, if you uh, assert that one third of all play in America last year in 2019 was from a high volume betting shop, and you know for certain that in 2003, it was roughly 7%. You do the inflation adjustments, and you're able to figure out what portion of play did we have from non-high-volume customers in 2003 to what we have now. And that decline is 63%. That is an alarming figure. These are customers, and we kind of allude to it in the paper, that, you know, the people who are sticking around, they might be kicking themselves saying, what am I doing? I mean, I'm crazy for having stuck around with racing. I should have switched to poker years ago or, or start, you know, getting into daily fantasy and, you know, maybe uh, increasing my chops in golf. And uh, I certainly may have the ability to do so, you know, going forward, but, but I've stuck around and most people who stick around, it's probably because they really like it. You know, they, they really care. Um, the, the, the people who are still wagering uh, on racing, the recreational players that they, they really like it. They're accustomed to it, and they might care more than the person who gave up years ago and said, eh, I kind of like betting, you know, whether or not uh, uh, Kepka is going to get up and down on this uh, on this 17th hole of the PGA Championship, right? Um, so racing has a lot more faces to it and a lot more connection to um, wagering to actually keep it going, and the others, other sports where wagering is tied in, it, it's often just a relationship between a customer and a bookmaker, a customer and a casino. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a business to consumer uh, relationship that is there, whereas this is really all very intertwined, whereas the individual better is essentially a business that is contributing. So you've got a, a B2B relationship for everybody that's involved in the sport. The question you raise, the second question, I think is um, vitally important, and, and it's, it is as important for people to understand that the answer is not, well, let's just shut these high-volume customers off. Like That just can't be the solution. Um, you wouldn't just cut off a third of all wagering and a growing segment of wagering. It's how do we find ways to incentivize all of our customers appropriately? Um, I do believe the integration of fixed odds betting will have a natural competitive effect to make tote wagering, tote technologies uh, more user-friendly, more integrated with uh, upper and middle level players, and should have an effect, uh, a positive effect overall, I think, on the business. Now, there are many bigger players who say that fixed odds will be the scourge of, of racing. And they say, I think we've kind of got the scourge right now in a system that is just completely unbalanced, that favors a third of our customers at the expense of everyone else. And it has the uh, effect of driving out racing's most profitable customers, the recreational ones, out of the sport with usurious takeout rates. You know, if, if you're only winning at a 50% rate in racing, um, that's really tough. 
And this example was, was really very properly laid out in the 2004 report that showed here were high volume betting shops betting $500 million, winning $496 million, very low effective takeout before rebates. And then you have your customers um, on track, your simulcast customers at the time, and what today would be really ADW customers. If those customers are betting a billion and only winning 600 million, that will erode much faster than the customers that are winning closer to the actual blended takeout. So um, it's the answer should not in any way, shape or form be cutting out these high volume customers. It's about a greater degree of equality of access and um, finding ways to advantage our customers differently across all different customer segments. And frankly, Jake, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's customer service 101. You know, different customers have different needs. You have to find different ways to serve them. We've been serving one group of customers at the expense, and probably the best way to put it, at the expense of another group, but it essentially has the effect of, of serving up a group of minnows for the sharks to just eat. And if the sharks run out of minnows, then the sharks start to wither away too. And you, you run into a monumental sustainability crisis. Um, and, and that's really what I think we're trying to, at, at our heart, raise awareness of, um, that, that not enough of the horse people realize this is a problem and that they should start exercising their contractual rights. Yeah, so I guess the question then becomes, if that segment of recreational and let's say middle tier are the ones that racing, you know, from a self-perpetuating point of view should be looking to not only retain but attract you know more and more of those types of customers and we've seen the growth on the high volume betting shop side up to you know today where it's a significant portion the sharks so-called sharks and obviously the the others that you mentioned i think you said 63 percent since yeah. you know have have eroded essentially given you know obvious yeah. uh takeout issues and other other you know items related to to wagering on racing if that's the case and we draw a trend line you know simplifying this to the the nth degree um we're increasing the the sharks let's say there's been a massive reduction in the profitable category um it seems like then the high volume betting shops have all the the aces up their sleeve and can continue to ask for advantages whether it's technology whether it's you know rebates and negotiating the different aspects that come with the the territory of being one of those high volume betting shops and then at some point they'll figure out that it's no longer as profitable as the alternative and you know basic opportunity cost tells you then it's time to jump to sports it's time to jump to whatever that ultimately is at that point is that the trajectory or am i missing a few steps in between or am i missing the the end game of this you you i think you've got it nailed um at some point if if things continue the way they are if these if these if this current model evolves untouched it's damaging for all parties including the high volume bidders right because you run out of minnows uh, to feed on and then those players will have to you know the, the high volume players will have to reduce their play because they just would take up too much of the overall wagering space so there is a point of um, diminishing return to those players. And as you know, you know, math dictates 
how much these these uh, entities will end up playing. So we don't think they've gotten to that point, although there are signs in the market right now, and perhaps they are pandemic related, that high volume bettors have been given the best deals they've ever had um, to, to participate more in racing uh, in these uh, most recent uh, months. Um, but we, we do recognize that they just can't grow completely unchecked and you know, they're not going to be 100% of wagering. It's ridiculous. That's never going to happen. They will get to a certain point. They will see that their the, the returns have diminished as a result. Um, they're essentially cannibalizing each other. They would back off. They would, they would drop their play overall. Um, that, that would happen at some point. But if you by then you've you've crushed all the minnows, uh, the recreational play is gone. People have, have fled to other things that you, know, you, you, you can't restock that pond. The. Um, I think the. In, in maybe the, the you know, so recognizing that you, you, you can't uh, you can't eliminate these players, you have to uh, to kind of respect them and find a way to manage them. Uh, and we know because we there the stories have been out. Uh, it happened in Australia years ago, um, with with the, 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 these players just completely fleeing the market because they did get shut out, or they 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 hurt some of the operators uh, financially to such a degree that, that that they had to make some dramatic changes. Um, you have to look at you know what what are the ways to solve this? How can you actually force? Um, track operators to, to change their behavior. It's not a, a it's not an easy answer. Um, if a lot of mainstream horse players feel beaten down by the operators themselves, the proliferation of the jackpot bet, where there has to be one single winning ticket, and that's the only way you can win this, do I want to go to a machine gun fight with a butter knife? That is that is a horse player, a recreational horse player approaching a jackpot bet. Um, they're going to get slaughtered. And we use an example in the paper from May at Gulfstream Park, where just through some rather simple pool observations, you can extract the average pool updates um, around what looked like the high volume updates to the pool. And there was about $10.6 million in the pool. And if that sounds like a particularly large pool for American racing, yes, it is. But it, there was a, a, a tremendous carryover, uh, several million dollars uh, that was sitting there to be won, and it was a mandatory payout. So instead of paying to a single ticket, uh, the entire pool was going to get paid to anyone who had, uh, who had a, a winning pick six ticket. And there was t over 10 million in the pool, 10.6 million. We estimated that roughly 5.2 million was coming exclusively from the high volume betting shops. Of course, there's extra value in the pool for them on this day because you have a, a tremendous number of ordinary recreational players who say, oh, I want a piece of the jackpot and now they're gonna pay it out. And so now I can go get it, um, but they're chasing it to, to crush them and say, well, I know we're on a level playing field here that you, all you have to do is pick six winners and not just be the only one, but there's all this money that's out there. A lot of it is ours. We're going to go win it back. Um, they represented 49% of the pool that day. And we think that may even be a slight underestimate. Um, so uh, horse players feel, you know, tremendously 
uh, disadvantaged by the operators. There is a group, Jake, that hasn't quite, you know, the, the battle is, is still undecided. And that's the battle between the horse people, the owners, the trainers, versus in, in, in their fight with the track operators. So the Interstate Horse Racing Act in America requires that for a bet to be taken on racing from across state lines to, to facilitate interstate wagering, the representative horseman's group in that jurisdiction has contract approval rights. They can say, yes, we will accept bets from this entity or no, we won't. The tracks are often the ones that are involved in doing those deals and then presenting them to the horsemen. And, and the horsemen in different states are involved to a greater extent. The last real significant fights on this, you know, are like 10, 11 years ago. There was a real high and mighty fight about it. And frankly, I think it was probably the culmination of a fight that, that started back in 2004 with the original task force report. But uh, the horsemen did not uh, want to go into the legal battle. There's an antitrust fight that still needs to be had here, too. Um, can the uh, horsemen uh, wield their power in a more collective fashion? And uh, today, the question and, and really the main recommendation that emerges from today's 2020 paper is uh, we ask the horsemen to recognize that there is an issue and to start asking questions. Who is betting on your races? Um, what are the different takeout rates that are being paid by different customers betting on your races? And how is that impacting contributions to horsemen? Because we know for a fact that the percentage of high volume play has increased. What the horsemen don't seem to realize is that by this continual increase uh, in high volume betting play uh, on their races, um, if other forms of subsidization of prize money start to dwindle away and you're left with wagering, you're going to be left with a product that yields the lowest combination of contributions to prize money. And the racetracks will say, well, okay, I mean, you know, we've got our casino here. We're, we're just going to kick on with that. Um, the horsemen will shrink uh, significantly. I, I, I'm not being overly dramatic here. There will be horse racing in this country for many years to come. If it's two people with two horses in a field in central Kentucky, there will be racing in this state. I can tell you that. Um, I can't say it'll be the same for all the other states. You know, does racing eventually evolve to some fair circuits? You know, a couple weeks here in Kentucky, Saratoga. I, I would be very suspect that, that California is able to continue racing. Um, I think they're they're really on the the um, they're on the hit list for a variety of reasons. Um, they're in a much worse place than some of these other states, and uh, that you know, racing is going to continue, but it, it would be a real shell of itself, and that will have incredibly detrimental effects to, like I said, tens of thousands of Americans who are in some way involved in the greater ecosystem of thoroughbred racing. So I want to talk about this as a technology issue and a technology problem, and maybe that weaves in well with the. The fixed odds horse racing product that you referenced earlier, and it was interesting to note that the uh, the 2004 report did mention about vertically integrating, you know, certain technology and aligning the business incentives, and that was apparently heated. Tell me about sort of forward looking, and you know, it's been 
pretty evident with respect to the high volume betting shops and their advantage from a technology point of view which i think today that gap is is probably as big as it's ever been potentially uh, across you know sharper players to the the recreational players in in any discipline uh, i think that's probably as stark as it's it's been over the last few decades and just moving forward what's the best way to make technology part of the solution and I guess there's going to be some different elements that, that come into it because you can't necessarily mandate and dictate what people are going to do at home on their computer systems to come up with, you know, whether it's handicapping, whether it's uh, systematic ways to attack some of these racing pools. But in terms of what can be controlled, how does technology fit within, you know, part of the solution, let's say, as opposed to being a uh, an issue that we are trying to deal with today that doesn't necessarily have a great solution? And then from there with respect to the fixed odds horse racing and and that's impact as well to many people's surprise the tote systems that process bets are actually far more resilient and effective at processing bets than most people think uh, there are complaints they are well founded about late odds changes and you know that 30 seconds after a race has begun a horse has dropped from 15 to 1 to 8 to 1, and the guy who's sitting there with $10 to win or $100 to win is just like, I loved this horse all day. I was fully expecting he'd be 10 to 1. He was 15 to 1. I put the bet in, half the field was loaded, and I was expecting, you know, this horse was never going to lose. I was expecting $1,500, and I get 800 and it's just a degrading customer experience to feel as though you lose even when you win. Um, that said, again, the to- the throughput of transactions in the tote systems that underlie American racing are far stronger than people realize. They are processing an incredible number of wagers in short periods of time. And it could easily get to, um, you know, there is a tremendous amount of, of processing capability that is there. So I, I don't want to, to just straight up say this, um, the system needs to be enhanced. The reality is that the technological advantage that you have of being able to deposit large win bets, large exacta combinations, at the absolute last second, knowing your bet is going to get in and disadvantaging every other customer down the chain that doesn't have that direct access uh, is really, I think, what you you need to find a way to rectify that in some capacity. Um, It it won't be easy, but um, I don't think anyone would suggest to you that uh, tote evolution in America has been significant. Now, the example many people look to and that we talked about last time uh, was Hong Kong. And it, Hong Kong always gets discussed in your program. I, I always enjoy listening to it. I heard Alan Aitken and, and Hats, as he is known, um, and I go back uh, from my days in Hong Kong, and he does so with many Um uh, who've been around for a long time. And, and it was tremendous to hear him on this program, Jake, I have to say that. But um, Hong Kong is, you know, has a better overall system 
because they're only offering bets on like 20 races a week, right? When, when that's all you're doing, uh, there is an ability to process in a much greater capacity. Granted, there's more money going on to those individual races, but you, know, you can reflect bets on all 10 races on a day at Sha Tin far greater than you can reflect all bets on all races across North America on a given afternoon, if that includes Saratoga and Del Mar and Belterra and Thistledown and Ellis Park and all these different tracks, hundreds of races over the course of a day, um, can you still effectively operate the system for the next race while reflecting accurate information for all races and not tie up the system? That's where I think there are some some limitations kind of in, in present day. And so while we've done a great job of being able to process significant number of bets on kind of the next event uh, and the, the, the tote system does update for the next event more frequently than it does the next race or several races down the way, um, I think we need to find ways to evolve because we have degraded the customer experience for our recreational players so much that they feel like the system is just not working for them. Like I said, you, you have customers that actually do have winning bets that feel aggrieved by, by what they're getting. Keeneland had an example of this in their recent meeting this summer. Um, and they did come out and say, look, this bet came in on time. It was appropriate. It was time stamped. We went back, we looked at it. It came in on time and it was a big win bet. And the horse, of course, broke to the lead, never looked back and was cut from 10 to five and, and won like a good thing. And you've got these people that are holding these bets, you know, thinking the last flash on the screen was still 10 to 1. And then the odds come down after the race has already started and they go back up and it's like, oh, geez, you know, congratulations. You know, you won, but you lost. That is an experience we have to find ways to, to manage. And there will be, I think, a natural flight to fixed odds uh, for customers who say, I am just tired of not getting um, not getting the price that I thought I was going to get. Uh, there are other ways that, that need to be done. We, we need to create our, our wagering platforms to look more like trading platforms, to show the markets changing around customers. Can we start showing and reflecting exotic combinations to all customers equally? There's a, a conspiracy theory, Jake, that has grown around the, the proliferation of these jackpot bets. And the thought is that, and, and you totally will see where it's coming from, that the high volume customers, they have access to all the combinations that are being bet. And then they'll bet the other ones that aren't. They know who is, um, you know, where there are openings and gaps uh, because they have preferred access. And I don't buy that really for a second. I totally understand where that, that fear comes from. But the, the reaction for me is that, that this sort of access uh, does not exist. But these are just the smartest guys in the room. They have modeled how the public is going to bet these events. They've honed it over years. They have the smartest programs. They use it to their advantage. But the recreational play, which you need to have, you need a diverse set of customers. Those guys are the ones that, that really get disadvantaged. And the industry doesn't exactly do a good job of communicating and being transparent with other customers. They don't 
They don't hear it. But when they hear that, Elite Turf Club won the jackpot pick six at Pleasanton on July 19th. And then they won it again at Del Mar on July 26th. And they won the jackpot high five at Woodbine last weekend. And they won a whole other string of pick sixes. And it's Elite Turf Club, Elite Turf Club, Elite Turf Club. You say, who the heck are these really good players, you know? And wow, they hit that on a $7.20 bet. That's Man, I wish for $7.20 I could get a $70,000 return. Well, they actually bet, I'm sure, you know, $6,000 into a $50,000 pool with all sorts of combinations to maximize their approach. And they took every little technological edge that they're given. Um, so this is a really, it's about managing customers' expectations, being transparent, a lot of the same fundamentals that we talked about a year ago and needing to evolve the entire industry, communicating with our customers better. And that's not just going to be, certainly that's not on the horseman's groups to do, right? That is on the the tracks, the bet takers themselves, um, the ADWs to, to find a better way to communicate and to relay this information to customers because there is really nothing worse for a, a wagering group that uh, when your customers are having what otherwise looks like a positive experience that they feel as though they've been aggrieved. That's 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 highly detrimental to the long-term sustainability of their participation. So what is an optimistic outlook for the implementation of fixed odds betting in the US when it comes to horse racing? Is there a a wide spectrum of possible you know outcomes or is there uh, a positive net positive case and then a net negative case or how is it you know in your circles being thought of as it you know potentially hits the US pretty soon? Well, we know it's coming in New Jersey, and we know that they're just waiting on a regulatory decision as to how this is going to be treated for tax purposes. And that's a frustrating process uh, to just basically wait for the state to say it's this or it's that. But we have to wait uh, before we can really kind of go forward with this. So I, um, it is coming. Deals are being done. Uh, the bet makers have, have already uh, announced uh, agreements with a variety of tracks a first kind of a panel of tracks in North America that they will have uh, fixed odds distribution for. That's great. Uh, that's a start. Uh, in some other jurisdictions, Indiana, for example, Indiana comes straight out of their legislation and says, horse racing is paramutual and don't say anything else. Like, or we don't want to hear it. Um, so that is going to require a bit of finesse. Uh, to get to that point, even when, in some cases, you know, some of these operators are doing deals um, internationally, right? Uh, the, the market uh, in, in, in Europe, uh, fixed odds betting on American racing, where there are firm agreements in place with American tracks, but doesn't require horsemen's consent, is over a billion pounds a year. Um, we think that number is only going to keep going. So, um, there are some entities that are kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth with that. Um, and then you have places like North Carolina, which hasn't really been on the radar for a lot of people. Uh, it was not a state that had a, a tremendous uh, history of legalized wagering. Uh, the uh, government in North Carolina um, approved a bill uh, last year, last summer, actually. And it says straight up. Uh, fixed odds or paramutual wagering on thoroughbred, harness, or other racing of horses, including simulcasting and off-track betting, 
uh, is now legal in, in North Carolina. That is the bill. And all of that must occur on Indian lands within the state. It's tied to the uh, Cherokee Casino that Harris uh, operates um, in western, the mountains of western North Carolina. But there you have the exact opposite of the Indiana law. Instead of saying, you know, paramutual only, here's a state that has come out and said on, you know, on tribal lands in our state, fixed, paramutual, knock yourself out. It's all going to be legal. And they're just, um, they have yet to unveil it, unveil that product. But uh, when they do, I I suspect that uh, you will see an entity like that potentially align themselves with bet makers uh, or, or any other fixed odds distributor. So I think it's coming. The concern, I know it's coming, right? Uh, it, it is happening. We, it, it's just a, a, an administrative matter that will be uh, decided here in, in the very near future. Uh, the extent of it, uh, I testified, I spoke with you, Jake, last year, right, right before I was testifying in the Kentucky legislature on the topic and was very well received. Um, I was up there for, I had about 15 minutes of prepared remarks, got questions for 30. I was shocked. And it was a a very good conversation. And and our organization comes from essentially a position of neutrality on this. You know, we are just advocating for what we think is best for the business. The details have not, uh, it, it did not go well. Uh, in Kentucky in the legislative session in 2020. Uh, first off, it was a truncated session due to the pandemic. But um, from the first day of the session, which was in January, up until uh, the pandemic really set in, every day, and I was watching the legislature every day, every day that they were in session, the chances of them pulling it off the table and talking about it reduced. And the discussion amongst um, uh, those that, that, that know a little bit better than I do is that uh, there were some religious concerns uh, from some elements of the state, that there were concerns from Churchill Downs Incorporated. And Churchill is on record as saying uh, in, in some of their corporate filings uh, that they believe the costs of mobile sports betting, um, that acquisition costs are just too high. Um, and I, it's funny. I heard, I heard Tom Waterhouse echo some, some similar remarks, uh, in, in your, in your recent interview with him, uh, that there were concerns about customer acquisition in, in that regard. Um, but, but Churchill was kind of adopting it as a, as a policy and that's seemingly why they've been against it. My, my take is this Churchill will be for it when Churchill wants to be for it. They just don't want to be for it right now. And, and they want to, I think a little more measured growth. Maybe that changes now in a in a pandemic uh, affected world, um, especially as we know that sports betting is up in Indiana. It's likely to come to Ohio. There's measures in place. Tennessee has it up and running. Missouri is not far behind. Illinois is a disaster, but it, it's it's there uh, and, and it's emerging and uh, it's it's very robust in West Virginia and and it's on the the docket in Virginia as well. So. Kentucky, as a state, um, it's surrounded. And I think it would be a, a monumental disaster if, if racing in this state uh, did not have fixed odds betting for racing. Um, 
and 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 did allow other other sports betting. I don't think that's a consideration. Uh, I think the sponsors of the legislation are are attentive to it. It's going to be very hard to pass it in 2021. It requires a different uh, majority to pass it. I require 60 percent as opposed to just 50, 50 plus one. Um, and so it'll be tougher to pass it in 2021 in an odd year. But uh, it might have to wait till 2022. But uh, the fight will be renewed again, and, and maybe the pandemic helps it again because everyone, I think, is going to be in need of every little revenue source that they can. How do we address the the recreational audience and even some of the the middle tier or whatever you want to call it when it comes to you know retaining that group of of, of betters essentially and gamblers because you know as we've discussed earlier that's a critical segment and is going to be a critical segment. And potentially the path we're on now is not only alarming, but, but even fatal, especially as you're describing now, some of the other options that are available today and, and into the future and certainly in surrounding states to some of those big horse states, but proliferating more broadly as well. And we obviously know what the offshore world represents from a sports perspective today for those here in the US. So tell me what the industry's, I guess, stance position is on it now and how much of a priority it is. Is it something that is widely known as a, you know, if not one, one A or one B in terms of priority. And, and do you have any other thoughts on this topic? Because I know it's going to be something that hopefully we're not looking back on in, in 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Um, I hope this podcast is not around in that time, but if it is, and we're talking again, we're going to say, you remember those, you know, great old days in, in 2020 where we had a, a pretty strong presence at the track, uh, which would be, you know, quite laughable for people hearing that now, but is that something that you're spending a fair bit of time on? I'm not spending a ton of time on that specifically, Jake, uh, because uh, that to me is almost uh, putting the cart before the actual horse here. Um, we need people to, to pay attention to this being a problem, right, first and foremost, before I think we can even really get into specific solutions. Uh, now, there is no argument that the behavior of the tracks at best seems disingenuous, right? They are proliferating, marketing, um, really, you know, churn-killing, bankroll-killing bets like these jackpot bets. Uh, they are everywhere. I mean, jackpot pick fives, right, which is just, you know, how – it's not that challenge. It, it, it's a challenge, right? You know, I, I'd love to be able to pick five winners more than I normally do. But uh, exponentially, the, the likelihood of – of having multiple tickets to pick all five winners is so much greater than picking six um, that, you know, it really gets burdensome after a few days on customers to keep pushing uh, these jackpot bets. And, and I really feel for the people who work at tracks that have these and have them quote unquote successfully because they require their talent to go out and, and post their tickets you know, here's what so-and-so's, here's here's my uh, jackpot pick six ticket today. Take a look. Well, for heaven's sakes, don't bet what they're telling you to bet. Because if two of you do it and it's a winner, you've just killed each other's chances of being the only ticket here to, to have a win. Like, it is just absolutely mind-numbing behavior that is, is, is warping our recreational customers and their bankrolls. So... I think the answer is, you know, we need to stop essentially savaging our most loyal and passionate customer group um, in in this. Now, 
if we look kind of beyond the, the whole concept that, that we've laid out here in the paper and just said, what could we be doing to help our recreational players if we put in a low takeout, and I mean a very low takeout, maybe 10, 12% high churn exotic bet, something like uh, Hong Kong's Quinella Place bet. Uh, it's called Swinger. It's called the Omni. Uh, it's got a duet in France. It's been called a, a bunch of different things. Pick two of the first three horses in any order. Um, it's, it's a high churn exotic. And if you put a low takeout on there to the point that it basically becomes an unrebatable bet, you are giving players a chance to have a bit of an excise return, um, an outsized return for a fairly low outlay. Um, so, so if we're looking at just one maybe plausible interim solution to, to do our customers a favor, I think that would be a viable option. On a, on a bigger scale, the greater pricing discussion has to be had. Do we time takeout? Uh, do, do we align takeout with the time that a bet is entered, right? Do you get a bigger advantage entering your bets uh, early rather than later? Um, does that, uh, you know, I think that is a legitimate consideration that, that should come into the equation. But, but again, putting these sorts of solutions out on the table and focusing too much on them before the people who really have contract ability to draw attention to this as a problem is a, um, I think it's, it, it's all one step a little too far down the road. I, I really hope we get to that point though. And then we can, uh, we can, we can kind of go forward together like that. So one final question for you around the pandemic and are there, are there any unintended consequences from the pandemic? And I've noticed in, in plenty of industries, the acceleration for good or bad uh, on, on many things. Have you sort of sat back and thought about what this might have impacted, whether it was, you know, potentially coming years down the line and has, has come sooner or, or something that people might not be thinking too much about or hadn't addressed too much in, in recent times that because of this pandemic and the extended period of time that it's, taking to get some things back up and running that it might have impacted the the horse racing industry or even on the wagering side? My phone started ringing in uh, mid to late April when we published a piece that was called Pandemic Exposes the Broken Model. Um, and what was really kind of sad as much it was, as it was revelatory is that you had daily reports of just record turnover figures on U.S. racing, particularly Oaklawn Park, Gulfstream Park. And they were the only two tracks, the, the big tracks that were running. And then you had little Fauner Park in Nebraska, which was just, you know, doing a tremendous business, um, which, mind you, of course, was um, that business was was helped along by uh, – by, by certainly some deals with some uh, high volume betting shops, but uh, you had you had tremendous records of handle purses were dropped almost immediately. And for horsemen, you know, I had trainers, uh, multiple Grade One winning trainers that I know pick up the phone and say, "Pat, what is going on? Why are they cutting handle?" 
Gulfstream just did, you know, the, the best uh, day, you know, outside of a Florida Derby in the past that they've ever done. They, they were doing 40 million uh, a day. Uh, Oaklawn, which has historically not allowed high volume uh, betting, they did 16.8 million on a Saturday, um, which surpassed their previous um the previous year's Arkansas Derby Day, which is normally their biggest day, but it wasn't Arkansas Derby Day this year. That year, that they had done 11.7 million. So we were talking about near 50% increases, and yet purses were being cut. The meet was not being extended. The president of the track is saying, we have no purse money left. We have nothing more to give out. Now, a part of that had to do with how purse money trickles to the horsemen in, you know, how, how that money is accounted for. And, and at Oaklawn, it's on a, a, a lag uh, to the following year. But at Gulfstream, the casino was shut down. Racing was doing great guns through the, the online betting windows. And handle, um, handle was great, but purses were being slashed. And this was the first, you know, we, we said in our, on our uh, point that, uh, you know, uh, it, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. It would have been great to have gotten this model right 20 years ago. We didn't. The second best time is now, right? Someone has to decide we've got to fix this, this model, this funding model where we are advantaging greatly the technological bet processors and the people who are putting on the show, the actual content providers themselves are not getting a fair share. Uh, they have been distracted by casino revenues that have been shared with them. Those casino revenues are starting to disappear. Governments are starting to claw them back. There is decoupling, it is real, it is happening in Florida with Greyhound Racing where they say, if you're a Greyhound track and you had a casino, you must stop Greyhound racing, but you get to keep your casino license. That is going to continue spreading. So uh, these sorts of things uh, have funny ways of getting exposed. Uh, my phone rang for two weeks and they moved on to something else. Um, but our hope here is that um, horsemen start to pay a little bit more attention. And look, this is a fight. This is a campaign. It will continue. It may get dirty. Um, th there's a lot of money involved, um, but uh, we are for the. We are a very unique organization, and that as a think tank and an advocacy group, we only seek what is best for the greater good of racing. And so many people, as it relates to gambling, are completely self-interested. We are trying to approach this from a greater good for all parties a greater amount of equity shared across the industry to keep it going. Uh, and it is a unique position, but it is, it is one that is unusual uh, in this sport and in this greater industry, and that we will um, hopefully be able to get all parties together in the future to, uh, to find a better way forward. And I do urge everyone to read the entirety of the, the paper, Racing Not Only for the Elite, and there's certainly plenty of great information in there. I think it was certainly striking when I first read it uh, how 
how many interesting aspects that seemingly have happened in other parts of the world or are happening now and certainly plenty of crossover so even if you're not in the u.s or in the industry in the u.s there's certainly plenty of things there that will be of relevance to you and and certainly the previous episode uh, that we did with with pat last year i think it's episode 108 go back and listen to that certainly many of the same very interesting takes on what's happening and and not only that but solutions and, and thoughts about where the industry is headed so Pat, thank you very much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, and and I really enjoy hearing your thoughts on what's happening in the world. Thank you, Jake. All the best.